This is Our American Stories. And up next, the tale of a disaster in American history, one of epic proportions. And Jesse Edwards brings us the Great Molasses Flood of 1919. Molasses isn't just used for grandma's cookies or for grandpa's rum. It's also used for weapons, high explosives, and munitions when it's refined to industrial grade alcohol. And the United States Industrial Company during World War I saw that this was a profitable market. Their subsidiary, the Purity Distilling Company, wanted to get in on the action. In the north end of Boston, Arthur Gell, treasurer of the Purity Distilling Company, realizes that he has to build a tank. You see, he's purchased a boatload of molasses that's heading north from the Caribbean, and he's got no place to put it. He commissions the Hammond Iron Works Company, and he doesn't pull a building permit. He only pulls a permit for the foundation. Therefore, he's not scrutinized by any inspectors. So the Hammond Ironworks puts together 18 huge steel plates with rivets, and they build this magnificent tank. It's 58 feet tall, 90 feet in diameter, a 240-foot circumference, and they're going to fill it with molasses. But there's only one problem. You see, the ship is inbound, and if they don't have that tank built, the ship will dump the molasses that they paid for into the Boston Harbor. Now, December of 1915 was a tough year weather-wise in Boston. With 20 inches of snow and some casualties on the construction site, the deadline was growing closer and closer. Finally, as the ship is pulling into the harbor, the tank is complete. Arthur cuts some corners. Instead of filling the tank to the top with water to test the structural integrity, he decides to fill it only six inches high. Arthur declares it sturdy, sound, and ready to use. Bring us the molasses. So they filled the tank up, and everything seemed fine, until about a year later. Isaac Gonzalez, a technician, noticed that the molasses seemed to be congealing around the riveted joints and seeping from the seams rolling down the side of the tank. He noticed children going to the base of the tank to put molasses on their fingers and putting it in their mouths. They were getting it all over their clothes. Well, he brought this to Arthur Gell's attention. Arthur said, Well, never mind. We'll just repaint the tank gray. And that's exactly what they did. They painted the tank gray to cover up the molasses stains. Another technician soon noticed that when he leaned against the tank he noticed this low rumbling noise that sounded like the growl of an angry animal. Another leaning against the tank swears that he could hear a heartbeat and that the tank was flexing in and out. Something was wrong. This wasn't molasses fermenting. There was bubbling inside, but this was an ominous sign that something was wrong with the integrity of the tank. 1919. The Molero is offloading nearly 2 million gallons of molasses into the tank at 529 Commercial Street. On January 12th, the temperatures are freezing, near zero. The following day on the 13th, 
they swing 35 degrees into the low 40s. By January 15th, it's a beautiful day in Boston. The sun is out and it's nearing lunchtime. All around 529 Commercial Street is bustling. It's Boston's North End. Mrs. Clority is out hanging her wash on the line. Her cat, Peter, sits on the doorstep. Mrs. O'Brien is planting flowers. Little Maria D'Estacio is near the train tracks, collecting free firewood. And then, suddenly, a low rumble shook the ground. It got louder and louder. In the freight yard, people looked at each other, mouths agape. And suddenly, the ripping, tearing, and machine gun sound of steel bolts being stripped. Something is happening to the tank. There's a booming roar. And a 40-foot wave of molasses is unleashed. Men, women, and children in the streets had no chance to react. It crushes freight cars like toys, topples buildings. Anyone caught in the path of this wave was devoured. Then the noise and the rumbling stopped. There was a thick pool of molasses spread over where 529 Commercial Street used to be. By sundown, 15 bodies are recovered. Six more the following morning. 150 people would be injured. Later, there are lawsuits. 3,000 witnesses come forward. And the lawyers tried to deflect the blame from the United States Industrial Alcohol Company and Purity Distilling. It wasn't the infrastructure of the tank, it was anarchists. They planted a bomb. And that was enough to get them off the hook for the Great Molasses Disaster. Legend has it that on hot summer days in Boston, you can still smell that bittersweet molasses scent that harkens back to the Great Molasses Flood of 1919. I'm Jesse Edwards, and this is Our American Stories. Blackstrap molasses and the wheat germ bread Makes you live so long you wish you were dead You add some yogurt and you'll be well fed With blackstrap molasses and the wheat germ bread My grandpa's older than the old gray mare he sits a-rockin' in his rockin' chair But now he's got a smile that he can't lose Grandma's sittin' in baby's shoes From eatin' blackstrap molasses and the Ouija bread Makes you live so long you wish you were dead You add some yogurt and you'll be well-fed I gave up cherry pie and T-bone steak Chicken fricassee and ice cream cake I don't need vitamins or pills at all I even mix it with my hat of call I'm eating blackstrap molasses and the wheat germ bread Makes you live so long you wish you were dead You add some yogurt and you'll be well fed my nerves were jumpy and I'd walk the floor I never got to sleep till after four But since I'm eating right I feel okay I'm sleeping every night and hey
This is Our American Stories, and we love bringing you great commencement speeches. And they don't just happen in the summers. They happen all year round. People graduate in the winter. They graduate in the fall. And this one comes to us via a man you probably all know, at least his title, but you may not know his name. But you're going to know how he thinks and feels about life after this remarkable commencement speech. And the man is Chief Justice of the United States Supreme Court, John Roberts, who spoke to the graduating class at Cardigan Mountain School, a boarding school for boys grades 6 through 9. Wow, pretty heady speaker for a, for a middle school. And one of the kids in that graduating class was John Roberts' own son. The Chief Justice began his talk with these young men with something quite different than the usual platitudes that a commencement speaker delivers. From time to time in the years to come, I hope you will be treated unfairly so that you will come to know the value of justice. I hope that you will suffer betrayal because that will teach you the importance of loyalty. Sorry to say, but I hope you will be lonely from time to time so that you don't take friends for granted. I wish you bad luck again from time to time so that you will be conscious of the role of chance in life and understand that your success is not completely deserved and that the failure of others is not completely deserved either. And when you lose as you will from time to time, I hope every now and then your opponent will gloat over your failure. It is a way for you to understand the importance of sportsmanship. I hope you'll be ignored so you know the importance of listening to others. And I hope you will have just enough pain to learn compassion. Whether I wish these things or not, they're going to happen. And whether you benefit from them or not will depend upon your ability to see the message in your misfortunes. My goodness, that should probably play at every graduation speech. That may be the best advice. We do a lot of commencement addresses here, by the way, on Our American Stories. That may be one of the best short passages. But John Roberts wasn't finished. Now, commencement speakers are also expected to give some advice. They give grand advice, and they give some useful tips. The most common grand advice they give is for you to be yourself. It is an odd piece of advice to give people dressed identically. <laughs> but you should, you should be yourself. But you should understand what that means. Unless you are perfect, it does not mean don't make any changes. In a certain sense, you should not be yourself. You should try to become something better. People say be yourself because they want you to resist the impulse to conform to what others want you to be. But you can't be yourself if you don't learn who you are. And you can't learn who you are unless you think about it. The Greek philosopher Socrates said, the unexamined life is not worth living. And while just do it may be a good motto for some things, it's not a good motto when it's trying to figure out how to live your life that is before you. And one important clue to living a good life is to not to try to live the good life. The best way to lose the values that are central to who you are is frankly not to think about them at all. And well said. Chief Justice Roberts then went on to give these young men, these boys, some tips. 
Over the last couple of years, I've gotten to know many of you young men pretty well, and I know you are good guys. But you are also privileged young men. And if you weren't privileged when you came here, you're privileged now because you have been here. My advice is don't act like it. When you get to your new school, walk up and introduce yourself to the person who is raking the leaves, shoveling the snow, or emptying the trash. Learn their name and call them by their name during your time at the school. Another piece of advice, when you pass by people you don't recognize on the walks, smile, look them in the eye, and say hello. The worst thing that will happen is that you will become known as the young man who smiles and says hello. <laughs> and that is not a bad thing to start with. You've been at a school with just boys. Most of you will be going to a school with girls. I have no advice for you. <laughs> the, the last bit of advice I'll give you is very simple, but I think it could make a big difference in your life. Once a week, you should write a note to someone, not an email, a note on a piece of paper. It will take you exactly 10 minutes. Talk to an adult, let them tell you what a stamp is. <laughs> you can put the stamp on the envelope, again, 10 minutes once a week. I will help you right now. I will dictate to you the first note you should write. It will say, dear, fill in the name of a teacher at Cardigan Mountain School. Say, I have started at this new school. We are reading blank in English. Football or soccer practice is hard, but I'm enjoying it. Thank you for teaching me. Put it in an envelope, put a stamp on it, and send it. It will mean a great deal to people who, for reasons most of us cannot contemplate, have dedicated themselves to teaching middle school boys. <laughs> As I said, that will take you exactly 10 minutes a week. By the end of the school year, you will have sent notes to 40 people. 40 people will feel a little more special because you did. And they will think you are very special because of what you did. Now, what else is going to carry that dividend during your time at school? Chief Justice ended his speech with some song lyrics. I cited the uh, Greek philosopher Socrates earlier. These lyrics are from the great American philosopher, Bob Dylan. <laughs> They're almost 50 years old. He wrote them for his son, Jesse, who he was missing while he was on tour. They list the hopes that a parent might have for a son and for a daughter. They're also good goals for a son and a daughter. The wishes are beautiful. They're timeless. They're universal. They're good and true except for one. It is the wish that gives the song its title and its refrain. That wish is a parent's lament. It's not a good wish. So these are the lyrics from Forever Young by Bob Dylan. May God bless you and keep you always. May your wishes all come true. May you always do for others and let others do for you. May you build a ladder to the stars and climb on every rung, and may you stay forever young. May you grow up to be righteous, 
May you grow up to be true. May you always know the truth and see the light surrounding you. May you always be courageous, stand upright and be strong, and may you stay forever young. May your hands always be busy. May your feet always be swift. May you have a strong foundation when the winds of changes shift. May your heart always be joyful. May your song always be sung. And may you stay forever young. Thank you. And there you have it, Chief Justice John Roberts, his commencement speech at the Cardigan Mountain School in New Hampshire. What a treat for those young men. John Roberts' story, because my goodness, he bore more of himself in this than any Supreme Court opinion. John Roberts' story, his son's story, Cardigan Mountain School's story, here on Our American Stories. our American stories. And now we take a look back to the American Revolution and to an author whose anonymous publication became the voice of the rebellion. The author, Thomas Paine. The publication, Common Sense. Take it away, Jesse. Thomas Paine wrote the book on American independence, helping to set the stage for the American Revolution. As one of our founding fathers, this English-born political activist, philosopher, and badass revolutionary was known as a corset maker by trade, a journalist by profession, and propagandist by inclination. Payne migrated to the British American colonies in 1774 with the help of Benjamin Franklin. Virtually every rebel read or listened to a reading of his pamphlet called Common Sense, which argued for independence from British rule. 
Here's Thomas Paine with the introduction to Common Sense as Anonymous. The cause of America is in a great measure the cause of all mankind. Many circumstances hath and will arise which are not local but universal, and through which the principles of all lovers of mankind are affected, and in the event of which their affections are interested. The laying a country desolate with fire and sword, declaring war against the natural rights of all mankind, and extirpating the defenders thereof from the face of the earth, is the concern of every man to whom nature hath given the power of feeling, of which class, regardless of party censure, is the author. Who the author of this production is, is wholly unnecessary to the public, as the object for attention is the doctrine itself, not the man. Yet it may not be unnecessary to say that he is unconnected with any party, and under no sort of influence, public or private, but the influence of reason and principle. Throughout the 1760s and 70s, people were getting tired of British taxation and rule. Protests were falling on deaf ears, which led to the Boston Massacre, the Boston Tea Party, and a boycott on British goods. Yet after all that drama, a lot of colonialists still had allegiances and nostalgic warm fuzzy feelings for the motherland. That became more of an unpopular position when British Parliament banned all trade with the colonies in December of 1775. But still, loyalists remained, and Thomas Paine was calling them out. The prejudice of Englishmen in favor of their own government of king, lords, and commons arises as much or more from national pride than reason. Individuals are undoubtedly safer in England than in some other countries, but the will of the king is as much the law of the land in Britain as in France, with this difference, that instead of proceeding directly from his mouth, it is handed to the people under the more formidable shape of an act of Parliament. For the fate of Charles I hath only made kings more subtle, not more just. Wherefore, Laying aside all national pride and prejudice in favor of modes and forms, the plain truth is that it is wholly owing to the constitution of the people, and not to the constitution of the government, that the crown is not as oppressive in England as in Turkey. An inquiry into the constitutional errors in the English form of government is at this time highly necessary. For as we are never in proper condition of doing justice to others while we continue under the influence of some leading partiality, so neither are we capable of doing it to ourselves while we remain fettered by an obstinate prejudice. And as a man who is attached to a prostitute is unfitted to choose or judge a wife, so any prepossession in favor of a rotten constitution of government will disable us from discerning a good one. Thomas Paine had sold nearly 120,000 copies of Common Sense from the time it was published in January to four months later in April of 1776. The argument for independence had reached a tipping point. Thomas Paine would provide the extra push. But what exactly was the main argument of this publication? Professor of History and American Studies at Yale, Joanne Freeman, has the answer. The main argument of the pamphlet did three things. So number one, it, it basically refuted the prevailing ideas against independence. It went one step further 
and demonstrated the necessity of independence and how possible it was. And it demonstrated the stupidity and utter uselessness, not only of the English monarchy, but just of monarchies generally. In fact, Thomas Paine hated monarchies so much that we're still talking about his rants and raves against them to this day. In the early ages of the world, according to the scripture chronology, there were no kings, the consequence of which was there were no wars. It is the pride of kings which throw mankind into confusion. Holland, without a king, hath enjoyed more peace for this last century than any of the monarchical governments in Europe. Antiquity favors the same remark, for the quiet and rural lives of the first patriarchs have a happy something in them which vanishes away when we come to the history of Jewish royalty. Government by kings was first introduced into the world by the heathens, from whom the children of Israel copied the custom. It was the most prosperous invention the devil ever set on foot for the promotion of idolatry. The heathens paid divine honors to their deceased kings, and the Christian world hath improved on the plan by doing the same to their living ones. How impious is the title of sacred majesty applied to the worm, who in the midst of his splendor is crumbling into dust. Back in the day, in 1776, those were fighting words. Here again is Yale professor Joanne Freeman with some context on what Thomas Paine's common sense accomplished at the time. First, the crown was the last remaining emotional and political link that was really tying the colonies to the mother country. By this point, the colonists had lost faith in Parliament. So Paine certainly knew that if he could strike at this last linchpin of colonial sentiment, he could advance the cause of independence. Second, if Paine could destroy the legitimacy, not only of King George, but also of the idea of monarchy overall, then the English Constitution's legitimacy would suffer as well, once again, hopefully, opening the way for independence. And then third, I think equally important, rhetorically, Paine had a really good writer's sense of pacing, and he knew that if he opened this pamphlet with this really dramatic challenge to all of the prevailing assumptions about government, and if he turned all of these assumptions on their head, he would pull readers in to his pamphlet and into his argument immediately and hold them there for the center of his argument, which was the second section of the pamphlet, and that is really the part that focuses on independence. Independence at this point was a topic that people didn't discuss openly. They didn't talk about it in public. If discussed at all, it was discussed privately, among friends, because basically it amounted to treason. Paine's dramatic introduction opened the way for him to introduce this really controversial topic. If the English Constitution lacked legitimacy, well, what next? And his answer obviously is, well, independence, the obvious solution. Which then brings us to the third section of the pamphlet, and that is the future. Paine concludes the pamphlet by discussing just what Americans could institute to replace the English Constitution, like what kind of government they might be able to construct to replace what they were stripping away. They were stripping away the tyranny of British rule, word by word. Thomas Paine was the voice of the rebellion. Arms, as the last resource, decide this contest. The appeal was the choice of the king, 
and the continent hath accepted the challenge. When we return, more from Thomas Paine, Common Sense, and the American Revolution. This is Our American Story. And we return to the story of the American Revolution and Thomas Paine's Common Sense. Thomas Paine's Common Sense was published in January of 1776 and a bestseller by April. It had turned colonial nostalgia for Britain into a demand for independence. But Common Sense wasn't only a radical condemnation of the status quo, but the very definition of the American spirit. Here again, Thomas Paine. The sun never shined on a cause of greater worth. Tis not the affair of a city, a county, a province, or a kingdom, but of a continent, of at least one-eighth part of the habitable globe. Tis not the concern of a day, a year, or an age. Posterity are virtually involved in the contest, and will be more or less affected, even to the end of time, by the proceedings now. Now is the seed-time of continental union, faith, and honor. The least fractured now will be like a name engraved with the point of a pin on the tender rind of a young oak. The wound will enlarge with the tree, and posterity read it in full-grown characters. While Paine was able to paint vivid pictures with his words, he was also very direct on how the country should move forward. Our plan is commerce, and that, well attended to, will secure us the peace and friendship of all Europe, because it is the interest of all Europe to have America a free port. Her trade will always be a protection, and her barrenness of gold and silver secure her from invaders. Thomas Paine made a strong argument against men of passive tempers who wanted reconciliation with Britain. Men of passive tempers look somewhat lightly over the offenses of Britain and still hoping for the best, are apt to call out, Come, come, we shall be friends again for all this. But examine the passions and feelings of mankind, bring the doctrine of reconciliation to the touchstone of nature, and then tell me whether you can hereafter love, honor, and faithfully serve the power that hath carried fire and sword into your land. If you cannot do all these, then are you only deceiving yourselves, and by your delay bringing ruin upon posterity. Your future connection with Britain, whom you can neither love nor honor, will be forced and unnatural, and being formed only on the plan of present convenience, will in a little time fall into a relapse more wretched than the first. 
But if you say you can still pass the violations over, then I ask, hath your house been burnt? Hath your property been destroyed before your face? Are your wife and children destitute of a bed to lie on or bread to live on? Have you lost a parent or a child by their hands, and yourself the ruined and wretched survivor? If you have not, then are you not a judge of those who have. But if you have, and still can shake hands with the murderers, then are you unworthy of the name of husband, father, friend, or lover. And whatever may be your rank or title in life, you have the heart of a coward and the spirit of a sycophant. Here again for a recap on the influence that this work by Thomas Paine had on colonial Americans is Yale professor Joanne Friedman. The power of the pamphlet wasn't just in its argument or in specific points of argument, but rather it was in the way that it reversed prevailing assumptions. Paine forced readers to consider a whole new way of looking at the impending crisis and actually at the entire imperial system. He laid bare assumptions that had led colonists to resist independence, and then by exposing these biases and holding them up to scorn, he forced people to think beyond what they had thought before. Thomas Paine was challenging the way things had always been regarding the survival of liberty. Professor Friedman describes the mindset of those who remained in support of the old way of doing things in contrast to what Paine was writing in Common Sense. So basically the old paradigm had been Liberty can survive among brutal and self-interested men only through a balance of institutionalized forces so no one can monopolize the power of the state and rule without opposition. So monarchy, nobility, and the people have an equal right to share in the struggle for power. Complexity in government in this sense is a good thing. Simplicity allows for monopolization. Well, Paine argues complexity is not a virtue in government. It simply makes it impossible to tell who is at fault. Paine charged that the complexity of the British government was designed to serve the monarchy and the nobility, that the king did nothing but wage war and hand out gifts to his followers, and that this entire idea of British constitutional institutional balance was a fraud. O ye that love mankind, ye that dare oppose not only the tyranny but the tyrant, stand forth. Every spot of the old world is overrun with oppression. Freedom hath been hunted round the globe. Asia and Africa have long expelled her. Europe regards her like a stranger, and England hath given her warning to depart. Oh, receive the fugitive, and prepare in time an asylum for mankind. Youth is the seed-time of good habits, as well in nations as in individuals. It might be difficult, if not impossible, to form the continent into one government half a century hence. The vast variety of interests, occasioned by an increase of trade and population, would create confusion. Colony would be against colony. Each being able might scorn each other's assistance, and while the proud and foolish gloried in their little distinctions, the wise would lament that the Union had not been formed before. Wherefore, the present time is the true time for establishing it. The intimacy which is contracted in infancy 
and the friendship which is formed in misfortune are, of all others, the most lasting and unalterable. Our present union is marked with both these characters. We are young, and we have been distressed. But our concord hath withstood our troubles, and fixes a memorable area for posterity to glory in. The present time, likewise, is that peculiar time which never happens to a nation but once, that is, the time of forming itself into a government. Most nations have let slip the opportunity, and by that means have been compelled to receive laws from their conquerors, instead of making laws for themselves. First they had a king, and then a form of government whereas the articles or charter of government should be formed first, and men delegated to execute them afterward. But from the errors of other nations let us learn wisdom, and lay hold of the present opportunity to begin government at the right end. In Part 4 of Thomas Paine's Common Sense, he specifically calls for a declaration of independence, a declaration that would come to fruition just months after this pamphlet was first published. However strange it may appear to some, or however unwilling they may be to think so, matters not. But many strong and striking reasons may be given to show that nothing can settle our affairs so expeditiously as an open and determined declaration for independence. Some of which are, first, it is the custom of nations, when any two are at war, for some other powers, not engaged in the quarrel, to step in as mediators, and bring about the preliminaries of a peace. But while America calls herself the subject of Great Britain, no power, however well disposed she may be, can offer her mediation. Wherefore, in our present state, we may quarrel on forever. Secondly, it is unreasonable to suppose that France or Spain will give us any kind of assistance if we mean only to make use of that assistance for the purpose of repairing the breach and strengthening the connection between Britain and America, because those powers would be sufferers by the consequences. Thirdly, while we profess ourselves the subjects of Britain, we must, in the eye of foreign nations, be considered as rebels. The present is somewhat dangerous to their peace for men to be in arms under the name of subjects, we, on the spots, can solve the paradox, but to unite resistance and subjection requires an idea much too refined for common understanding. Fourthly, were a manifesto to be published and dispatched to foreign courts, setting forth the miseries we have endured and the peaceable methods we have ineffectually used for redress, declaring at the same time that not being able any longer to live happily or safely under the cruel disposition of the British court, we had been driven to the necessity of breaking off all connections with her, at the same time assuring all such courts of our peaceable disposition towards them, and of our desire of entering into trade with them, such a memorial would produce more good effects to this continent than if a ship were freighted with petitions to Britain. Under our present denomination of British subjects, we can neither be received nor heard abroad. The custom of all courts is against us, and will be so, until, by an independence, we take rank with other nations. These proceedings may at first appear strange and difficult, 
but like all other steps which we have already passed over, will in a little time become familiar and agreeable, and until an independence is declared, the continent will feel itself like a man who continues putting off some unpleasant business from day to day, yet knows it must be done, hates to set about it, wishes it over, and is continually haunted with the thoughts of its necessity. Thomas Paine became the voice of American independence when he published Common Sense. He turned men and women who were sympathetic to the status quo into rebellious, freedom-fighting Americans so that future generations could enjoy this glorious bounty that we call America. And this is Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, and you're listening to Dan Fogelberg's Same Old Ang Syne. And this is our Story of the Song segment. And we're not going to tell a story of this song, though it's a heck of a song. And we tell stories of songs that have a story themselves. And by the way, the opening lyrics of that song you just heard, Met my old lover in the grocery store. The snow was falling on Christmas Eve. You want to hear what happens, don't you? And we've all been there, too, meeting that person that we broke up with, that person we went to school with, maybe wanting to avoid, maybe wanting to see. In a canon of personal songs, leader of the band stands out as one of Dan Fogelberg's most treasured. The song, which originally appeared on the singer-songwriter's 1981 album, The Innocent Age, is Fogelberg's loving tribute to his musician father, Lawrence. Fogelberg wrote this in 2003 about his dad. He was a musician, an educator, and band leader. I was so gratified that I was able to give him that song before he passed on. Fogelberg's dad died in August of 1982, but not before this hit song made him a celebrity with numerous media interviewers interested in him as its inspiration. Here's Dan Fogelberg speaking about his hit single, Leader of the Band, in 1991. I think I could only have written one song in my life. It would have been leader of the band. Because what that meant to my father and to me, there's no way I could quantify that or even explain it. Um, my father passed away over 10 years ago now, and he, he got to hear that song. He got to see this, enjoy the success of that song. People were calling him on the phone and interviewing him in his last days. You know, who is this man, the leader of the band, you know? And he just, he loved that, and I loved that, because I, I respected him so much. I mean, he gave me everything I am, really. My mother and he were both musicians, and the idea of being a living legacy is really the truth. I don't think I'll ever be as accomplished a musician as he was, but um, I've had a different gift. It came to me in a different way. I've been able to reach and touch people with these songs that I write. And that one has probably touched more people more deeply than anything I've ever done. And by the way, don't we all want to have our sons and or daughters speak that way about us? And again, that's why we do these stories, folks, because you don't hear them anywhere else. 
Vogelberg's music was powerful in its simplicity. He didn't rely on the volume of his voice to convey his emotions. Instead, they came through in the soft, tender delivery and his amazing lyrics. Here, for example, is the chorus to leader of the band, in which Fogelberg cherishes and aspires to someday possess the same love and musical ability as his dad. And these are from the song. This is the chorus. The leader of the band is tired and his eyes are growing old, but his blood runs through my instrument and his song is in my soul. My life has been a poor attempt to imitate the man. I'm just a living legacy to the leader of the band. Here's Dan Fogelberg's love letter to his father, Lawrence. song, Dan Fogelberg's tribute to his dad, Lawrence. The story of his song, Dan Fogelberg's story, his father's story, here on Our American Stories. I thank you for the music and your stories of the road. I thank you for the freedom when it came my time to go. I thank you for the kindness and the times when you I love you near enough The leader of the band is 
gets tired and his eyes are growing old But his blood runs through my instrument And his song is in my soul My life has been a poor attempt To imitate the man I'm just a living legacy To the leader of the Our American Stories, where we tell you stories about everything. History, sports, the arts, love, faith, and courage. And today, Faith brings us the story of the Baker family. There are neighbors here in Oxford, Mississippi. We're about an hour south of Memphis and broadcast from a small town. And we love bringing our stories to big towns and small towns across the country. Take it away, Faith. Who's your favorite princess? The princess Elsa. Oh, that's a good one. <laughs> yeah. Maybe in my family, I don't know. I don't know what princess I like. Oh, there's so many. Yeah. <laughs> that was Lily Baker. She's your normal four-year-old that loves princesses, the DreamWorks animation movie Trolls, Chick-fil-A, and singing. But she doesn't have the life of the normal four-year-old. Lily has acute lymphoblastic leukemia. This is a type of cancer where the bone marrow makes too many immature white blood cells called lymphocytes. She was diagnosed in March 2017 when she was just three years old. Her parents, Nicole and Lee Baker, were naturally shocked. But today they are here to share their journey with us. Here is Nicole Baker, the mother of four-year-old Lily. Well, it's just the three of us. We live here in Oxford. We're in Oxford. We're in Oxford. And Lee and I are from different parts of the country. Lily's dad. I'm from Seattle. He's from Eupora, Mississippi. We met in Anastasia School in Jackson, Tennessee, and then had her after we were married. Moved down here. And we found out that Lily had leukemia. We found out she was sick because she developed a really high fever. Uh, Lee and I were out of town at an anesthesia conference, and she was staying with her grandparents. They called us and said that she had a 105-degree fever, and they gave her Tylenol. They didn't really know what to do, so we said to take her to the ER. They took her in, and 
They just said that she must have an ear infection. And I wasn't really satisfied with that answer because she's a very healthy girl and she had a high fever. And they took her home. She started throwing up the antibiotics and just got sicker and sicker. So we got on a plane, started coming back home. We asked them to take her back to the ER and she was really not doing good by that point. She was pale, throwing up, and not really with it. And they finally drew blood and saw that there some counts were off. So we took her up to Memphis and saw that her hemoglobin and hematocrit were down. They were suspecting leukemia, took her to St. Jude, and confirmed the diagnosis of leukemia. And she got blood immediately, and we were pretty scared. She was pretty scared, too. A port is a small disc made of plastic or metal about the size of a quarter. This sits just under the skin. Then a soft, thin tube called a catheter connects to the port to a large vein. This is how Lily receives her chemotherapy medicines. They go through a special needle that fits right into the port. This would be scary for anyone, let alone a four-year-old. She has a little Paw Patrol animal rubble. She has to hold Rubble's hand when she gets her port accessed or when she gets deaccessed, and she's oh, okay. We count to, to take it out, and and then we, we put it in. They put it in. I hold Rubble's hand. It was a shock that this fever turned out to be something more. Now Lee and Nicole found themselves in the midst of cancer treatments. She. It's a hundred and twenty weeks total. Of chemotherapy. She gets chemo every day at home by mouth, and then we go in every single Thursday for her to get her port accessed and to get IV chemo. And about once a month, she has to have, she gets put to sleep for medication to be injected into her brain and spinal cord. And we only have to do that a couple more times, and then I think we have about like a year and a half left of treatment. How did Lee, Lily's father, handle all of this? Oh my gosh, um, I, being from the country where we didn't go to the doctor for anything, um, and especially when you're dealing with kids where they're sick and then they're better and they're sick and they're better, she, uh, when she got sick, I was telling Nicole, she's fine. You know, it's, she has the flu, she has strep, or whatever, and she ended up in the emergency room twice that weekend and then at Le Bonner, um, a day later and and when we realized it was it was something serious and she had cancer um, it it changed the whole way I look at things now I mean and you would think being in the medical world where you see things where you see people little things turn into big serious disease processes and things that, that I would have already been been like that but it was very, I was shocked, you know, when she got diagnosed. And uh, now I look at things a lot differently when, when it comes to, uh, you know, her getting sick. I see how, you know, serious things can be. You want to think that everything's going to be okay. Lee reacted like any parent would. You never think that it will be your own child to get sick. It's a lot harder than I think people would imagine. They see us day to day. Lily's happy, smiling. But 
when we started this journey, this is multifactorial. Lily got diagnosed with leukemia and nine days later, actually this Friday, we lost her twin brother and sister. And it was just solely due to the stress of having her being diagnosed with leukemia. Just being so afraid that you are going to lose your child is is the worst feeling imaginable. It, you're so frightened, you feel so vulnerable, you're, you do feel alone and everyone tells you it's gonna be okay, it's gonna be okay and you just wanna yell, this isn't okay, this is never gonna be okay. Lily was just gonna start chemo and I was about six months pregnant Everything was going well, and fortunately we had her grandma with us that day, and I just went into labor while she was about to get her chemotherapy, and I leave, took me out the door, and we had to leave her, and it was her first time getting the IV chemo. We're scared to death. It was the worst day of my life. It was terrible. And while I'm losing these babies, I'm scared for Lily because she's now at the hospital without me and Lee, and we don't know what's happening to her. And then, oh, and it was so frightening that day. They had called, and Lee had to go back to the hospital because Lily developed a fever. I thought God was taking all of my children that day. Lee left. I was all alone. Some of my friends in Memphis came up, and... I was just so scared and so overwhelmed. The next day, I was discharged from the hospital, and I had to go back and take care of her. Like, there was no time to cry about the baby. I had to be 100% on to take care of this frightened child. And so there, it was just, it was excruciating. I just, we stayed at the Tri-Delta place on St. Jude's campus, and all day long, we were afraid, trying to take care of her. And then at night, I'd sit in the bathroom and just cry because I didn't have my babies. And I, I just couldn't believe all this was going on. But then day after day, just taking care of her. And then she developed the blood clot. Then she was in the ICU. Then she was in surgery every morning, afraid that she was going to die. So it's like we just had to push it aside. And, I mean, she's still getting treatment. We still almost have to push it aside. and. But we had to have friends come stay with her at St. Jude because she couldn't leave the hospital so we could go to the twins' funeral. I st still don't feel like I had enough time to recognize their life. And when we come back, we're going to hear more about the Baker family's trials, Lily's. Again, this story out of Little Oxford, Mississippi, where we broadcast just an hour south of Memphis. More on the Baker's family story here on Our American Stories.
This is Our American Stories, and we've been listening to the Baker family's story, Lily's story, and let's pick up where Faith last left off. We left off with Nicole and Lee sharing about Lily's diagnosis and then the loss of their twins. What is life like now since the diagnosis for the Baker family? Things do start to get better, but she, besides the medicine she has to receive every day, she gets injections in her abdomen twice a day, so we have to give her a shot. And that took a long time to get used to. She'd scream and cry. She'll get sick more often than regular kids because she has a low immune system. So seeing her in pain and when she's suffering and when she's scared, it just makes you feel so helpless as a mom. And not only, you know, just grieving loss of a normal childhood for her, we're also grieving the loss of two other children and her family members. So it's just a lot of grieving. And it's something that I don't think anyone besides other mothers with sick children really understand. A lot of things had to change. What about work? We both do anesthesia, and we, we love our jobs. We work for a group called Willow Anesthesia in town. Our, our workplace has also been a, a huge support to us. They, I was off work for about three months while Lily was diagnosed, and they just were like, it's fine. You come back to work when you're ready. We've continued to work. Somehow we thought it would be best for Lily, for us, to just continue on a normal life. Uh, once a week, I'd take her to St. Jude. Medications, doctor's appointments, and lots of tears. A situation like this would put stress on any relationship. As far as our personal relationship, when we first found out about the diagnosis and lost the children, it was like survival mode. But... And we didn't have much time to really tend to our relationship. And I guess we just always knew that we needed to take care of each other as well. We grieve in different ways. We handle things differently. Um, So the best that we could do is just be understanding and be there for each other because we're both hurting in different ways. But I do feel like it has brought us closer together as a family because we've gone through things that most people never will have to experience. We just found a way just to make it work. She has cancer, but it doesn't define her, and we have a normal life. We're normal family. I mean, as normal as it can be, right? Having a child that is sick and needs daily doses of medicine is nothing close to normal. She started out with a Donna Rubison, Bencristine, 6MP. She gets dexamethasone, IV methotrexate. Yep, that's about it. I don't know how someone in the medical, someone not in the medical field does this because keeping track of all the medications, because not only is there the chemotherapy medications, but there's the medications to counter the negative side effects. So we have to give her Zofran every morning because the 6MP she gets at night makes her sick. We have to give her gabapentin or morphine because when she gets vincristine, it makes her back and legs hurt for a week. Um, So I make what we call medical world a medicine reconciliation sheet. And I make this at home and I get my ruler out And about once a month, I make this long sheet of all of her medicines, what times a day she needs the medicines. And there's about 
10, 11 that she needs each day. And I put a highlighter so we check it off. There has been times when I'm sitting making this long sheet for the month and I just hate it. I absolutely hate it. And I cry and I'm like, this isn't fair. This shouldn't, this shouldn't be my life. Why am I sitting making this medicine sheet? Then, you know, just when we make it part of our life, check it off and move on. I think I'm the one that has the harder time separate like I'm emotional and I'm on all day long I have to take care of put on a smile you know we have to show her what a happy home is about like we're not sad all the time we go to work um but I don't get much time to grieve or be sad but the reality is like it is sad there's there's so much going on so I run and I'm all alone on the trail I start crying like a like a weirdo um, but then I go home and it's fine. Cook some dinner. So I guess that's my little compartment. What are some of the things Lee has done to keep moving forward? I probably don't handle it the way she needs me to all the time. Uh, from the time Lily got diagnosed, all I knew was we had to get her through it. And so I didn't take any time to really grieve or... Um, Probably didn't support her like I, like she needed. Men do handle things like that. They just get become so task and goal oriented. Maybe just try not to think about it, not not focus on it, and you know, and and that probably, as far as our relationship, that's probably one, been one of the biggest struggles. <laughs> it was so much easier for me to just distract myself, focus on other things. And I kept working while she was while she was off, since we worked for the same group, to make it easier on them so they didn't have two people out. And while the Baker family has their different emotional outlets, a place where they have found a lot of support is in the community here in Oxford, specifically at their church. Our church, we go to First Baptist and they, there was one particular evening where Lily developed a blood clot because of one of the chemotherapy medications that went from her groin all the way down to her left foot. We were terrified, and not only was she newly diagnosed with leukemia and starting on high doses of chemo, but she had to have surgery to remove the blood clot. She was going to be put to sleep, and she had to be paralyzed for a week. Yeah. Oh, and we honestly didn't know if she was going to live. And we didn't know if she'd make it through the surgery. The surgery itself was highly risky. She might lose her leg and could lose her life. Never been so afraid, praying, like, on my hands and knees, on the floor praying. Church, they put together a prayer service specifically for Lily. They had um, a large number of the church members got together. They had someone playing the guitar and all just prayed for her that night. And we felt it. This sounds crazy, but we looked out the window of the little room we were staying in, and we saw a rainbow over St. Jude as we were being prayed for. And we knew it was going to be okay. And she was going to be okay. Um, that stands out in my mind. And, of course, they did do dinners. We, they just fed us, took care of us. We came home. Our lawn was mowed. Our house was clean. Everything was taken care of. And people paid bills that we didn't even know we were receiving. Um, literally just picked us up and took care of us. And I've never seen anything like it in my life. Tough times tend to either soften our hearts to God 
or harden them. And it definitely has strengthened both Lee and Nicole's faith. I, I'm from Seattle and moved to Jackson, Tennessee about eight years ago. And it's, it's a different culture. Um, people don't really speak about religion. And so I probably was not as strong in faith as I should have been or even knew that I wanted to be. Moved here and it became a big part of my life. Lee's from Mississippi and he's a Baptist and we got married and I still think that without Lily's situation, I personally would not have grown as close to God as I needed to be. And as, us as a couple and a family, I really feel like it's strengthened our faith, our relationship with God, um, just have stronger faith now than ever before. And when we come back, the rest of the story, Nicole and Lee Baker, their daughter Lily, and my goodness, family, faith, and friends. That's the social capital we talk a lot about here on this show, and it's what's to stay in this family, and I can't wait to get to the other side. You're going to hear a really redemptive and really beautiful resolution to this remarkable story. The Baker Family Story, here on Our American Stories. turn to the Baker family story, and we pick up with the husband, Lee, sharing about the strengthening of his faith through Lily's cancer. Um, it, I mean, my faith certainly got stronger. I think everyone goes through periods where, you, you know, it may get a little weaker during it because you, you ask so many questions, oh, you know, why would God allow this to happen? things like that, and, uh, but when, when you get into uh, something like cancer and then everything else that went along with it and what we went through, you end up with that's all you do have, and then you start building. It starts to, you know, strengthen from that, and, and it was like we all, all we had left there for a little while, and then, you know, we started to see prayers answered, and I mean, it's really my faith has gotten a lot stronger. And, and we felt so, you know, defenseless. It took, it took forever before I realized, or to me, it, it seemed like it took forever before I realized that I was pretty much just getting myself through it and not, um, not helping uh, get her through it. It's something that if I could do differently, you know, I probably would have... There are a lot of resources there uh, at St. Jude with uh, counselors and, you know, uh, grief counselors. And I probably would have talked to people more, took more advice. The, the, one of the things you want to do early on is seclude yourself from the other families. And there are people that come around and try to talk to you and tell you what they've been through. And you're, you're not even ready to accept that your kid's 
got cancer and so you distance yourself from them and you would avoid them and and you don't take any of their advice and you don't you're not gonna ask for help and you it takes a long time before you start accepting the help they offered no one should have to go through something like this alone thankfully the bakers haven't had to because not just their church their local Chick-fil-A did something especially special for Lily to make sure the bakers knew they had support. What happened at Chick-fil-A on your birthday? The big printer campaign. We were completely surprised. Chick-fil-A is Lily's favorite restaurant. Uh, she has to take steroids once a month and she gets so hungry. And all she wants to eat is chicken nuggets from Chick-fil-A. So she's there all the time. She draws them pictures. They know her. And we thought it was appropriate to have her birthday party there. And we thought it was just going to be a regular birthday party. We had about 12 of her friends, had some little prizes planned, but you know, nothing big. And we got there and I saw the old Miss cheerleaders and didn't think anything of it. And I was like, oh, they're probably hungry after a practice or something. And you know, didn't think anything, but then Shortly after we got there, the Chick-fil-A cow came out in a princess tutu and a troll's hat. It was a troll-themed birthday party. Lily was hysterical. She was just so excited. And then, before we knew it, everyone in the restaurant broke out in a flash mob. There was the ROTC, the Revelettes, the Oxford cheerleaders. Everyone was there in a troll hat dancing to Lily's favorite music, troll songs. And it was such a surprise, wasn't it? We were all surprised. I was in tears the whole time. It's just so special. She sings all day long, every day. There's nothing that gets her down. I had no idea about it. I, I don't, I don't get involved in the parties and everything anyway. Uh, so they just pretty much told me where to be and when, and it's pretty amazing. Here's Lance Reed, owner and operator of the local Chick Fil A. My marketing director, Lee Fife, uh, she approached me because she knew the family and um, she had told me that it was uh, Lily's birthday. Lily had a birthday already scheduled and Lee wanted to do something really remarkable for Lily knowing that story. And so I told Lee, I said, hey, go out and make it happen. And so Lee Fife, our marketing director, she went out and approached uh, Oxford schools and she got the um, uh, Ole Miss cheer and dance team and all of them involved and they worked on this flash mob. And so when Lily showed up for her birthday, we had the cow and and a a bunch of the Ole Miss and Oxford cheer people and ROTC and others in there. And they did this big flash mob for her right in the store. And it was such an incredible um, uh, thing to see there. And just the excitement on Lily's face. And uh, it just just really made her day. For us, one of our big hearts from a Chick-fil-A standpoint is that, you know, we're talking about always how do we have a positive influence or a positive impact on the lives that we come into contact with? And so it was great. Some of our team members participated in the flash mob and other things, but it was great for them to be able to see and experience that right there in the store. It was very, very, very impactful for them. Over the last year, the bakers have had to learn quite a lot. What kind of advice would Nicole give to those in her situation? I think just knowing that you're not alone, just to open your heart to the things that people offer you. It's really easy to have pride and to say no. Like, you know, we've always worked. We take care of our family. 
people wanted to give us donations. People wanted to give us things. And my initial reaction was, no, we don't need it. You know, there's there's needy people out there. We're not those people. And I wanted to reject what people wanted to do for us. Um, and it took me a while to realize and a friend telling me that this is their blessing to do something for you as well. So don't don't take away other people's blessings. And by allowing other people to help us, it, it has helped me. So it's hard to let down the pride and to accept others into your life. But once you do it, it'll benefit all. Lee also has some advice of his own for the dads out there. The only thing I would tell them is, you know, the, the, the people at St. Jude, the, they're going to, or the whatever cancer center, they're going to take care of the kid. and You've got to take care of the whole picture, the whole, you know, your family. And you can try to do that by getting back to work as quickly as possible and keeping everything going at home. But the, the thing that I would tell the fathers is to, if it takes counseling or, or whatever it takes to, to make sure that your relationship is staying strong um, and that you're Know, actually supporting your your wife you know you got to do whatever it takes to to make sure that you're that you're uh, fulfilling that responsibility Lee goes on to share more about the cancer community and how getting involved can really help in the midst of all the emotions you know we we're getting we get involved in in some things with fundraising and and stuff Nicole uh, ran uh, the St. Jude Half Marathon this past year and raised over ten thousand uh, dollars for the for the kids and um, it was uh, it's one of the one of the times you get to see the, the happiness once you once you get through the worst part of it and you can start getting involved in giving back. It's like there's a bigger purpose. Yeah. But Nicole knows from experience that realizing that bigger purpose doesn't happen overnight (laughs) it takes a long time to get there like lee was saying um when you're first diagnosed i was in i was angry i was in denial and my friends said that they noticed when i walked through the hallways at saint jude i kept my head down because i didn't want to look around i didn't want to see all the sadness the bald kids i didn't want to think of her being bald i was like this isn't happening and i don't want any part of this and other moms wanted to talk to me and no, I don't want to be in the cancer mom club. Like, don't talk to me. Now I'm the mom trying to talk to all the other moms. And you do want to be in the club. Um, it's just quite a process. It's just mm-hmm. not about Lily having cancer. There's a bigger purpose for all of us. And it's amazing to see her, even as a four-year-old, four-year-old to realize that. Um, and we see she's already sympathetic and empathetic towards other children with cancer and has a giving heart so it's not just about us and this little family it's like now what can we do like people for years have fundraised and done research and we had no idea what was going on basically just living selfishly like oh you know like what are we going to do this weekend or let's see if lily can get involved in soccer and you just realize it's not about any of that. Um, this last week, Thursday, when we went for treatment, Lily, it was literally a year from her diagnosis, March 14th. She went up to the hospital room where we stayed for about the first month 
and she was handing out umbrellas. Matilda Jane, a little fundraiser, and they had umbrellas for Lily to give out to other kids with cancer. And she walked in the room, and she was like, here you go. Don't worry. You're not going to be in here for very long. It's going to be okay. And the parents started crying. And I was like, here, and they said, how is she? And I said, this is a year later, and look, she's fine. Because they were in our shoes, literally in that room, on that couch. They were crying. And I was like, this is your life a year later. When you wish upon a star, makes no difference who you are just seeing her she went in other rooms and she was giving the kids hugs and kisses and it's just so special and now it's crazy to say but leukemia has a purpose in her life and all of our lives and I think it's going to be what we can do for other people when you wish upon a star as dreamers do this is Faith Garcia from All American Stories.